the Gerontological Society of America, advancing innovation in aging. GSA on Aging. I'm Howard Dickholz, social media editor of The Gerontologist, a publication of the Gerontological Society of America. I interviewed Kathy Black from the University of South Florida. Kathy is an expert in age-friendly communities, and her paper was the lead article in the special issue on age-friendly environments. Kathy, you are at University of South Florida. Tell us about your current position there. I am a professor in the School of Aging Studies at the University of South Florida. It's a regional campus with Tampa and St. Pete, and I am in Sarasota. Excellent. So you have a paper that came out in the Gerontologist on this special issue on age-friendly. And I wanted to talk to you about it because I'm fascinated by the age-friendly. What do you call it? Is it, is it a movement? Is, is it a framework? It, is it a research program? Like what, what is it? Like, it's hard to put, my, put your finger on it. Yeah, it's, it's all those things. It started out as a focus on community features that make life better for people to age across all abilities. And it's really turned into a worldwide movement. There's now mm-hmm. over 2,000 communities worldwide. So what does it mean for a community to be age-friendly uppercase and then age-friendly lowercase? And I'm yeah. assuming that if I can kind of, if we can wrap our heads around it, that the age-friendly uppercase is like an attempt to get communities to become age-friendly lowercase, right? <laughs> well, sure. I guess that's one way to look at it, Howard. There are thousands of aging initiatives in communities around the United States and around the world, and they're all good to make life better for people as they age. But the age-friendly community model that came from the World Health Organization ARP is a national partner uh, for all the American communities. That formal model, it's a five-year process, and it explicitly looks at built social and service environmental features of our communities. So it's a formal aid. So I would say that the big age-friendly is the formal process and that all the aging initiatives are the smaller age-friendly models. And the idea, the WHO and AARP, idea is to help communities become age-friendly, and that's where I use the lowercase, right? Yeah. Actually, there's a platonic ideal of age-friendliness that we're aiming towards. I think that that's a fair way to say that, Howard. It's about how do we make our environments uh, better for people to age well. It's as simple as that. So do you have an example? Like when you do this work, you did this uh, review of all of the communities that have been participating in this project and your paper, you looked at all of their, all of the public reports that you could find for participating communities and you analyzed them. And we can get into a little bit of what you found. But one of the things that I wonder is if you as a, a scholar in this area, if you have like an exemplar that you think of as being a place that's really doing this well, There's a lot to say there. I mean, there are some communities that are incredibly strong with an an all-government approach 
And I'm talking about every department throughout their governmental structure, whether it's public works, customer customer service, um, transportation, housing, they're really doing it well. You have other communities that are more sort of external players, more stakeholders throughout the community. The ideal is a whole of community approach so that you have every aspect of government doing what they do, but also every other sector and industry in a community doing what they do to make that environment better for people at all ages. You know, Howard, I'm not sure how much you you recall about the blue zones, but they have this concept called life radius. We live 90% of our lives in a five mile radius where we live. And so that's why the big focus on community. And so when you first started talking, I'm thinking, you know, when you look at the built environment, if we can walk safely outside of our homes and access amenities or whether it's transportation or a doctor's office or some goods or services, if we can do that safely, that, that's a good thing. And so just, just looking at our sidewalks, can people of all abilities, walkers, wheelchairs, uh, people with mobility issues, walk and traverse it as safely as people you know, who are very capable of running it? And it's things like that. That makes us able to live our lives so we can fully participate in social, civic, and economic life if we can get out of our house. <laughs> Okay, so that makes me wonder, to what extent do this, does this model privilege urban communities over suburban and rural communities? Well, actually, the, you know, the built environmental features vary. A lot of the United States is suburban and rural, and they're just different challenges. And by the way, urban has challenges, too, in the built environment. They have less space, for example, for housing. So transportation and housing and, uh, and outdoor spaces are just huge features, regardless of the setting. There are pros and cons and in each setting. And Really what each community needs to do with the age-friendly work is what are your existing assets and how do you work with what you've got to work with? And so every community will vary and differ. Some communities, you know, have to work more on, on some things than others, and, uh, but it's decided by, driven by the community, co-created by the community, including Howard, a very important role for older adults to be involved throughout. Nothing about us without us. That's really an important feature. So that's great. Now I want to come back to that because that was one of the domain areas where I think there was a lot of room for growth, shall we say. Yes. um, But just to stay on this point, in like suburban and rural communities, it seems like those communities are going to need to rely on transportation services differentially than urban communities where you've got more walkable neighborhoods, at least at least for people, you know, above a certain threshold of mobility. So it seems like what you're saying is that what makes a community stronger in terms of being age-friendly is relative to the population density of that region. It is, but I want to expand your thinking about, you know, mobility and transportation because, for example, telehealth and stream services and delivered services and home-based efforts, there's all sorts of things out there helping people meet their needs to stay connected and get what they need outside of that traditional sort of getting from point A to 
just point B. Sure, I, I certainly appreciate that. I was just sort of keying on the built environment as the primary factor in mm-hmm. terms of being age-friendly. And it kind of goes back to the blue zones, which you referred to. You know, one of my takeaways from the blue zones is that the walkability of the communities that were identified as being as having extraordinary longevity were walkable. They had social and community integration. And, you know, some kind of like balance in terms of dietary access to fresh foods and and some cultural aspects to their dining. Yeah, a a little bit different focus there. Some similar features, but yes, they were more focused on eating and stress and a few other things. But a lot of those communities were mountainous and they were in more traditionally sort of rural areas, less urban areas, but people were more fit and more connected throughout their lives. So how much of that informs the age-friendly movement, or is it more of a fellow traveler? Well, you know, the the origin of the age-friendly movement was the World Health Organization recognized that your environments affect how we age as much as, if not more, than our genes and our lifestyle factors. So they did a lot of cross-national work and identified core features with thousands of the participants. And that's how they came up with this checklist of these domains, which are roughly grouped into built features, social features, and traditional service features. Okay, so yeah, let's dig into these different domains and the different models. And I got to ask you, like, doesn't your head just explode? (laughs) Look at the lists of all these different frameworks and definitions. So tell me, what do you think are the key domains? And, or really, I guess, is there a canonical set of domains? And you guys had to make some kind of synthesis of several different frameworks in order to do your work. So take me through that just a little bit. I mean, we could talk for probably two hours on just that point, and you spent a year coding all of these data. But so let's try and let's try and get through in a couple, you know, concisely. What are the domains, and then why are they there? Essentially, you know what I mean. What's the evidence for that for each of those? Well, again, they were uh, largely derived and driven by participants from more than 20 countries in which the WHO pulled them together as the most relevant features that affect community life. And so sort of we're all running with this already established checklist. What we did in our work was assess the progress reported by the communities because the age-friendly model includes a provision for, okay, so what did you accomplish at the end of your five-year cycle? And so my colleague, Patricia O from the University of Maine and myself, wanted to look at American age-friendly community progress altogether. But I do want to just get, get back. We initially were, were thinking, well, you know, was there more work done in transportation? Was there more work done in housing? And so we agree with you fully. We call it a mile wide and a mile deep. It's literally everything under the sun that affects right. aging and, and community life. And so the question is, what's more important or where is the evidence show the greatest factor? What I can tell you, it was it was like comparing apples to oranges. I mean, we had communities 
that had a report that was just a couple of pages long. We had other communities with reports that were hundreds of pages long. We had communities doing a couple of things. We had communities reporting hundreds of things. <laughs> so every community varied in yeah. what they were doing. We were hoping to see demonstration of progress as far as evidence of improvement. We did see a fair amount of output measures, how many people were served or participated. You know, for example, if uh, sidewalks were improved or benches were put out, you know, we did see counts on some of those things. We saw some action steps that were process components to get bigger things done, but we didn't see really outcomes and we're not criticizing the movement at all because really, Howard, what outcomes do you accomplish in just a couple of years? Mm -hmm. This truly is a decade plus long uh, movement to really see some of the major changes that we hope to see from us. So what are a couple of the uh, dimensions on which these communities are focusing their energy? Well, I think uh, we did see a lot of multi-sectoral engagement. Now, the extent of which is something that my colleague and I are actually looking at now, because we know that government, business, the traditional nonprofit sector, and really the role of the broader uh, civil society, which is volunteers and you know, the lay public. Lots of sectors have a role. Lots of industries have a role, including many that haven't thought that they have a role. And so we're seeing a lot of movement there and we find that very promising because we are traditionally siloed in the aging network. And so expanding to the arts and to construction and builders and urban planners, they're glad to work with us towards a healthy aging across the life course. So there's a lot of promising things happening. <laughs> so we're, we're excited about all that. Great. So let's shift gears just a little bit. How did you get interested in this age-friendly? You know, Howard, I will just tell you, I'm a, I'm a former nurse and social worker, and uh, much of my research career has been spent decades on planning in advance for care throughout the end of life. You know, focused on traditional issues, falls, and who's going to make healthcare decisions for you when you're uh, without capacity. However, about 15 years ago, I started working with the communities, you know, naturally occurring retirement communities, aging in place initiatives. And as I listened more to where the majority of older people reside, which is communities and not institutions, I realized it was about living fully and not, it was about the positive aspects of living and not just on the traditional sort of negative paradigm. So for example, in the area of transportation, in the traditional world, it's about transportation to doctor's appointments or medications or food. But when you talk to people, they want to go out for a ride. They want to go see a play at night. And so it changed me listening to where people wanted to be. So that also segues nicely back to this uh, nothing about us without us yeah. notion, because if the people who are doing the planning are not the people who are living in the communities, then how do they know what people need or want and what makes for a, a full and complete life? 
<laughs> That's the question, Howard. I look, Howard, a lot of research is funded top down and people are not used to checking in with, you know, the subjective input of the people that are part of what's being looked at. In this case, it explicitly requires older adults involved throughout the process. Okay. So you did this whole study, you looked at how many communities were there? 20 that you were able to analyze? I think there were 30 at that point. We're continuing our work, and I think we're now up to about 40 communities that have completed their five-year progress reports. And, like, what's your gestalt? Like, how are we doing? You know, again, I think it's it's a process. I think that looking at some of the strengths, H-Friendly Boston talked about spillover effects. So when we're connecting and doing something that is now ignited another department or service that hadn't looked at aging before, uh, that's a good thing. And so we're not even able to capture all that we're doing, but there's a lot of progress happening there. A lot of points are being connected. I think one of the greatest gifts is age-friendly has provided us with a unifying structure that is allowing us to connect where um, where we hadn't connected before. So I get it that it's a, a journey, not a destination. Yeah. But I'm, I'm just curious, do you think that the communities that have been at this for five plus years, are these frameworks, do you feel like they're taking communities in the right direction and that older adults are experiencing, you know, a higher quality of life, experiencing more access to services? experiencing more civic engagement and so on in those places? You know, again, it varies for each community, but the model requires that a municipal leader apply. And so you immediately have government at the table. And so that right there is a commitment from government. And when you look at the communities and some of the work, particularly that government does, you know, they spend a lot of time in the built environment. I can pretty much pick up a master plan for any community USA, and there's going to be some goals in there on transportation, housing, and outdoor spaces, I'm pretty sure. And they're also concerned about all ages. And so there's something great about looking at aging across the life course Uh, and keeping people healthier and active longer and driving longer (laughs) and in their houses longer and doing things. You know, the majority of people want to age in place. We know that in study after study. So this work does support elevating that and letting government realize that uh, you're better serving your aging (laughs) residents by focusing on these aspects of life. You said something interesting. You said master plan. And, you know, it reminds me of my hometown of Teaneck, New Jersey, where there is a master plan that the township has. And it has, I I haven't, tell you, I haven't read it. It's not my, (laughs) (laughs) to the extent that I've, uh, you know, encountered it recently, it is about zoning. It's about what uses can be done in every block of the entire township. Can you have retail? Can you have residential? Can you have a high-rise building? Can you have single-family ownership? Can you keep a boat on your front yard? Or do you have to keep your car in your garage? Or can it be on the driveway overnight? You know, it ties in with ordinances and it can get 
quite Picayune, but it's also very much about the built environment and the physical use of space. So so I'm curious if master planning is in this age-friendly and do these precepts show up in master plans and is that adequate for a for a town or a community? So so here's the story there. Many of the comprehensive plans, master plans, they're called different things in different municipalities and counties levels. They, uh, again, are going to address many of these concepts we're talking about, particularly in the built environment. But beyond that as well, you'll see them talking about libraries and services and recreational sports and things like that. Here's the thing. The concepts are in there, whether the people who wrote them are aware that that's an age-friendly lens and why that's good for people of all ages. That's the educational piece. Look, the goal to sustain this movement is to embed this so that those professionals and those leaders now carry this on and they put that 100-year lifespan in everything that they do. And so some of them already are advanced at it. Some of them are doing it and don't realize it. And others just uh, need a little bit of learning to move in that direction. So it's it's all good. The movement's really tremendous. It's really a delight to see, you know, just on that zoning issue you mentioned, that has to do with the mosaic of housing opportunities that people need. We're not that traditional nuclear family, although homes are still being built for that. <laughs> There's a lot of older people living alone. There's uh, there's a need for multi-generational housing. There's a need for accessory dwelling units. There's a need for shared housing, of which zoning may affect who, uh, how many unrelated people can live in the same area. All sorts of things. So you can see the intersect is there. Now we're connecting it more with the real needs of people and the quality of life for people to have these options available to them. Kathy, what are you working on now? You've mentioned the, the research that you reported on this particular special issue is continuing. What else are you working on? Well, I just did a big report with my colleagues in, in public health on equitable, healthy aging. We have, there are about 3,000 communities in the United States that have uh, departments of health, and many of them follow the accredited planning process to create community health assessments and community health improvement plans, which is very much aligned with the age-friendly work as far as the model and as far as the features of community life that keep people healthy. So we're looking for a greater intersect among the age-friendly and public health worlds. And that movement is really growing quite strong there. And so there's a role, everybody's a stakeholder in our aging world. And there's a role for all organizations to do what they can which is why we see age-friendly universities and age-friendly healthcare and age-friendly business and age-friendly arts and age-friendly libraries, you name it. There's all sorts of, everybody can do something organizationally as an industry-wide and in communities to make our worlds better for people to age. That sounds really fascinating. It sounds like it's really a never-ending <laughs> area of research, which is great for the uh, Full Employment for Researchers Act. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thank you very much, Kathy. It was very nice talking to you. Great to talk to you, Howard, and keep up all your wonderful work. You are really doing terrific with the podcast, and thanks for everything that you do. Thank you. Thanks for listening. 
To learn more about The Gerontologist and to read its latest articles, visit the website at www.geron.org. The Gerontological Society of America was founded in 1945 to promote the scientific study of aging, to encourage exchanges among researchers and practitioners from the various 